Uh, we are going to pick back up in the book of Matthew tonight. I don't know if you know this, but we have actually been going through the book of Matthew for the last few years, and we are just about halfway done. I mean, isn't that good? Yeah, we're getting to it. I thought that would be encouraging for a lot of us who have been kind of in it for the long haul. And, um, and so we're almost there. Hurrah. All right. Uh, so while you celebrate with me, would you turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 12? Now, as you're turning, a few things I want you to listen to me say. <laughs> uh, you will hopefully remember from chapter 11, which is the chapter just prior to the one we're going to be in tonight, that John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets to ever live, had just been arrested and imprisoned. That's kind of the setup there. And uh, we read that the people's disinterest in both John's message and Jesus' message uh, was continuing to grow. And so we find Jesus calling the people of the day to leave behind the teaching of the spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, and to ultimately follow his teaching uh, and his way of life. Because we read, you'll remember, at the end of chapter 11, only he could give them rest for their souls. Do you remember that? No. All right. Okay, now, here's what you need to know as we move into chapter 12. It's at this point in our text that the tides against Jesus are going to begin to turn in really evident ways. There's kind of been this subtle ripple happening, tension growing between the Pharisees and Jesus, and in this moment in our text, the crescendo has escalated and we will see tensions mounting. With that, are you ready to look at verse one? Me too. Funny. Let's read together. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, look up. We're going to take this chunk by chunk. It's going to be super fun. I promise. Um, Verses one and two, we're gonna stop right here and I just wanna to talk to you for a second about what's kind of happening. So Jesus just finished, remember in chapter 11, this idea of yoke and rest and all of that and now we're moving into him and his disciples moving about the region of Galilee because remember that's where he was, he was ministering to people there and they were hungry, they were kind of on a road trip and they needed a little snack. We've all been there. So they pass by the grains, or heads of grain and are picking them off and eating them. This is a lot like what you guys eat sometimes uh, here in Portland. That's like a food you eat. I see you. Now, what's important to note is that they were doing all of this on the Sabbath, a day that every Jewish person knew was set aside to worship God. And on that day, according to the Ten Commandments, they were to not do work of any kind but instead, they were to rest. Now remember that Jesus had just said that he would provide rest to those who were burdened. And so it's a little bit ironic and also super appropriate of Matthew, our scholar, to have uh, in his authorship, Jesus now immediately involved in a controversy concerning the Sabbath day, which is actually set aside for rest. Moving on, the disciples uh, picking and eating the wheat was to the Pharisees' work. They were like, you're doing something you shouldn't. So they call out Jesus and they accuse his disciples of doing what was unlawful on the Sabbath. 
And their accusation, they hoped, would discredit Jesus as a rabbi amongst the people and then ultimately squelch the influence that he was having in the region. That was their ambition in calling this out. Now the question we have when we read these first two verses should be this. Is Jesus overlooking the command found in the Torah for every Jewish person? Is he just bypassing it altogether? Is he indifferent to his disciples' disobedience to the scriptures itself? This is what the Pharisees would have been asking themselves. Now, this is a fair question. This is something we get to ask along with the Pharisees. And just as he does all the time, unafraid of the accusation, Jesus meets the Pharisees on their own territory and he appeals to their strength as students of the scriptures because really the controversy here wasn't about whether the Sabbath should be observed, but on what the observance actually entailed. Look down at verse three. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and are yet innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, Jesus quickly responds with this notable phrase, haven't you read? Which some scholars say is his way of compassionately saying, if only you knew what that verse actually meant. And so uh, it's important for us to note that for a few reasons. Um, When he says, haven't you read, it's in contrast to what he's been speaking to the crowds, where he says, haven't you heard? And, And he's making a point, these two distinctions are intentional, and they're to reiterate to us, the listener, that it was important for Jesus to bring the Pharisees back to the scriptures they thought and believed they knew and understood so well. Now, in our text, Jesus immediately goes into the story about a guy named King David, and that's out of 1 Samuel 21, a a book of the Bible in the Old Testament. Now, David, for all who were listening, was understood to be one of, if not the greatest king that Israel ever had. And while he was at one time a king, he was also known by the people as a Messiah-type figure, So all that to say, he was a super big deal. When someone said David or King David, people were like, ears up, we're listening. Now I need to give you a little backstory on what Jesus is actually talking about in this story. So David, you got it, you're like, he was a king. Yeah, he was a king who was anointed as king, but he wasn't technically on the throne yet. So David's anointed, and there's a current guy on the throne named Saul, and he's a little upset because David's anointed as king, and it's a little bit of an awkward turtle situation, right? It's like, I'm anointed, but you're on the throne. So, And so Saul didn't take that well, and he got angry, and he's like, I'm gonna kill David so I can keep the throne, no big deal. And so Saul chases David around, Israel in this very fun desperate housewife situation and he he's chasing David and David's running for his life and he's got men with him who are protecting him and they're sometimes fighting Saul and it's so fun and complicated. All that to say his men were hungry and he was probably hungry and they knew that in the temple they, there would be food. So they, they stop by the temple and they say we're going to eat this bread that was consecrated or set apart food that only the priests were allowed to eat. And when they do that, they eat this bread. Uh, We see that they're in this text in 1 Samuel 21, they're not condemned, but quite the opposite. 
They're actually encouraged to eat the bread, which was unlawful for them to do. Only the priests could eat the consecrated bread. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. That was like argument one. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there because in verse five, he directs the Pharisees' attention uh, to the necessity of priests who are required to work in the temple on the Sabbath. And this is something that they should know very well. So he's saying, man, these these, uh, priests have to work in the temple uh, on Sabbath day, which means they're breaking the law, yeah? Okay, so we see Jesus moving from talking about uh, and, and, and really reframing their understanding of the holy day of Sabbath to redefining the holy table and temple as well, which was super scandalous. He's talking to them and saying, it's not totally what you think it is. And simply put, he makes the point that the temple service surpasses Sabbath observance. And he's like, checkmate. So this is his final point in the argument with them. His use of scripture probably made it clear to the Pharisees that they um, were in the presence of someone who would challenge uh, their existence in the world. That, that's kind of the level of intensity he's bringing in this conversation. Now, at the core of his response to the Pharisees, he's not all just rough and tumble. At the core of it all, what we're supposed to be hearing and paying attention to is that Jesus is speaking to the restoration of this idea of rest. He's trying to reframe it, not only for the listeners, but for the Pharisees. And he's trying to protect what is in danger of becoming more a burden than a blessing. This is Jesus' movement. Now, in verse six, he moves on to his main point, and Jesus says, more than the temple is here. And the crowd's like, huh. We're like, hmm. And they're like, whoa. It's like me saying, more than the sweater is here. But it's cute. I know a lot of you have said so tonight, so thank you. But right, more, more than the temple is here. And when he says this, his argument comes together. Follow the math equation with me. If authority, so, so David being king, trumps the action, the eating of the bread, and if the temple or the priests trump the Sabbath day, then it follows that a greater than the temple could allow Sabbath work. Does that make sense? I had a slide, but I was so worried that I didn't understand the greater and less than signs that I was like, let's pull that. <laughs> that, that could be very bad. Uh, it's been a while. So, we hear Jesus, some of you are like, I get it. Uh, Okay, so Jesus, boldly claiming that he, in that statement he's saying, I am the greater one. I am greater than even King David himself. Artis France, a scholar in the book of Matthew, helps us understand the gravity of what Jesus is saying when he says this. When Jesus speaks of the temple, he is not contrasting himself against a person but is pointing beyond himself to the new principle of God's relationship with his people, which will result from Jesus' ministry, a principle which will remain embodied in the community of his disciples even when Jesus himself is no longer present. He's making a really important point that's gonna be essential for his disciples in the next couple weeks and months, and important for us today. Let's read on. Verse 7. 
Jesus refers back uh, here to the words of an Old Testament prophet named Hosea, stating that mercy, not sacrifice, should be at the center of Israel's worship. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, the point of the law is not the scrupulous self-sacrifice that you draw from it, Pharisees. Instead, it is the wide-hearted humanity that the prophets make of it. And he's, he's creating and painting this beautiful dichotomy. Jesus, in that phrase, is rebuking the Pharisees for missing the point of the law, which is that the commandment is really only kept when the inner meaning is kept. Here, Jesus reveals that the Pharisees found guilt where God saw none. And this is provocative. Now in verse eight, he makes another huge pronouncement saying more or less, not only is he the son of man, he's greater than David, he's also greater than the temple, and he is Lord of the institution, which would have blown their socks off had they been wearing any. But mostly, I think they're wearing sandals. I think that's what history says. I don't actually know. Okay, so that's, that's the first part of our text. Controversy, number one, Jesus right out the gate, giving the heart and truth, like right at him, like wham, bam. There's other things to say. Okay, so with that claim, we move on from our first controversy with the Pharisees to another. And in the first, Jesus was um, piling on the scriptures to put the Pharisees in their rightful place. And it, and it worked beautifully. Jesus was like, I'm, I'm a rabbi. I, I know the teachings. I know the meanings behind the teaching. But in this next controversy, we're gonna see him argue, not from the scriptures, but from experience and from common sense, which I like. It's another dimension of who Jesus is. Look down at verse nine. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and it was completely restored just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus moves along and he heads to the synagogue, a place obviously where he could be found. And it seems that either the Pharisees followed him there or that there were more in the synagogue who were kind of in on the plot against him. Now upon arriving, we are introduced to a man with a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees see this as an opportunity, a space where they can test Jesus. And at the core of what they were doing is that they were hoping he would fail and he'd be discredited once and for all in front of everyone, especially in the synagogue. And so they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Which he knows is, is a little bit of a dance. Like, is it work? Is it crossing any other of Mosaic law? All that, it's, it's complicated and convoluted. And I love his response. He's in verse 11, he offers this story about a sheep. Now if you're like, what's with the sheep? It's the Bible, okay? And second, to put it in context, um, it's almost like if you had a work truck that you needed to work, um, to pull hay, or I don't know, whatever people do with work trucks, but you needed your truck and it got caught in a ditch. And the same is true with a sheep. This was their livelihood. 
This is what they needed. This is livestock. This is food. This is um, how they made their money. And so your truck or the sheep gets stuck in a ditch. And he's basically saying, would you just let the sheep stay there, potentially die and get injured and all of that, especially if it would be pretty traumatic if that was the only sheep someone had. I mean, can you imagine? And if your truck was in the ditch, would you just be like, well, I'm going to wait to call AAA until the sun goes down? Uh, because it's still Sabbath and I don't want to work. And he basically makes this point in a very human way and says, no one would do that. No one would look at their sheep. And listen, this is just an animal. No one would look at this animal and not pull it out. And he's saying, and how much more would you do that for a person? Therefore, he says in so many words, of, cur- of course it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Of course it's lawful to, to do the right thing on the Sabbath. And he makes this point loud and clear. It is about the spirit of the law, not the law itself. Now, let's pause a second, because I don't want us to miss this. What Jesus is doing here is, is wildly revolutionary, particularly in their day. Look, he is flipping their religious practice and institution on its head. And once again, he's pointing out that, that re, the reality that religion without relationship to God himself is nothing short of empty ritualism. Are they both important? The law and the, the communion with God, yes. But they are connected. They're not to be isolated experiences. And he, Jesus, is drawing a hard line, taking the command of Sabbath and rightly centering it around the welfare of persons and communities instead of an opportunity for religious showing off. He is unveiling like he has done over and over again the more behind the action. And this is the message he's been proclaiming. This is the message of the kingdom. And it goes directly against the Pharisees' teaching. The heartbeat behind the kingdom he was bringing and the way to life itself centered around the more behind the action. And over and over again, he was drawing their attention to that reality. Now, in verse 13, he demonstrates that kingdom as he heals uh, the, the hand of the man who had a withered hand. And we see in their response, the Pharisees pull back, go away mad, and hold a little meeting. And here, in the words of one of the scholars, the shadows of passion begin to form. Now, if you're thinking passion, like passion fruit or a passion fragrance, that's not what we're talking about. In church history, this language of passion is, is the imminent coming reality of Jesus being crucified, buried, and risen again, and we know that the story is moving in that direction. When we read ahead in the scriptures, uh, we will see that when Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem, it will be his royal claim and his attitude in the temple that will get him tried and killed. And this, our text, even here in this space, is a direct reflection of what's to come. Now Matthew is a brilliant author, and he wants us, he's calling us to see the shadow of the cross falling over our story. The agenda of the Pharisees' meeting here is to kill Jesus, and everything is pointing us back to this reality. Now at this point, we're not surprised. They're frustrated, they're exhausted by him, he keeps winning, and, um, and so that's a frustrating thing. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised in our text that they're saying we're going we're gonna to figure out how to kill him. Now, Dale Bruner puts it this way. He's a scholar on the book of Matthew. He says, when a person penetrates the vitals of a movement, as Jesus does in every religion and ideology he confronts, showing the movement's practical and even biblical obsolescence, that person threatens a movement intolerably. And this is what's taking place in our story. The Pharisees are responding in the only way they know how. Now, story moves on, we're almost done, and Jesus, fully aware of what is coming on every level, goes on, verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will uh, no one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. All right, so Jesus, fully aware uh, that the Pharisees are plotting to kill him, doesn't fight back. Jesus, fully aware that his death, the impending death that he would die is not just the electric chair or being shot by a gun and all those things are horrific and evil, but he knew that his imminent death would be one of great suffering because in the Roman Empire, that's the deal. It would be a torturous and violent death and yet there's no defense coming from him. He will not do and respond to the Pharisees in the way that they have responded to him. And so he withdraws from where they are, but he doesn't abandon what he was sent to do. Now imagine with me for a second that you were Jesus. Some of you are like, that's a stretch, amen? Okay, that's all right, we're glad you're here. Opposition is growing, and you know that someone is plotting your very death. You know the brutality of it. You know the plans are moving ahead. And just when you head out to get a little bit of space, you just had two really intense conversations, you turn around only to find that there are 100 people in your rearview mirror who are all looking to you to heal them in their time of need. In their time of need. And you're like, well, I got some stuff going on internally. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, people are plotting my death. There would be some thoughts that I would be having. Now, this is probably where I would have held up the book Boundaries and been like, hey, let's talk about personal uh, space. Let's talk about some boundaries to, to draw. But Jesus, so gracious and so good, we read, healed them all. Healed all the illness he, he could have retreated in such a way that he was removed from the street, and no one would have thought anything less of him. And yet, even after those two encounters, he engages and loves his people through the power of healing. After he healed them, he told them not to tell anyone, which also seems silly, because it's like, hey dude, if you need a little support, this would be the time. Let people know how cool you are and that you're healing hands and other things. This would be the time. And we should all be asking why. Why didn't he 
let them tell others what had taken place. Well, Matthew tells us that in verse 17. He tells us that all of that took place here to fulfill a prophecy about the Messiah spoken hundreds of years before. This is how we and the people of the day would know that he was in fact the one they had been waiting for. In verse 18 to 21, we read that this is what the Messiah would be like. Without a doubt, these 10 great lines from Isaiah explain Jesus' silent retreat from the Pharisees and provide for all of us a really clear review of Jesus' mission. This passage is called um, the servant, and, and it's a little bit of a strange one. And and what I mean is that it is an unusual description of what a king or a messiah would look like. And not just to the people of the day, but to us as well. If you're talking to me about a king, I'm pretty sure this is not what he would sound like. The passage, passage starts out stating that this servant will bring God's blessing and justice to the world to the nations, that word nations in the Hebrew is goyim, it's, it's a word for Gentiles, it's, it means that all of us. So this servant is not just coming for one select people but for all people. And look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out, no one will hear his voice in the streets. So as he brings justice and blessing, he will do so not, it seems, by bullying and harassing Israel and the nations, not by threatening or fighting. Rather, rather, we read, it will be through the quiet and gentle work of healing, bearing the love and the grace of God in the dark places, not just for the people of Israel, but for all of us. Now, of course, the hearers would have thought, withdraws and commands to silence are puzzling messianic deeds. That's what they would be thinking. Messiahs don't ordinarily retreat, they advance. That's what they should be doing. And messiahs don't seek to be hidden, they seek to be known. How else will people follow them? And so here, at the center of the quotation, is Matthew's central point. Jesus didn't stay around to show the Pharisees and the people who is Lord. And he didn't flaunt his powers. He isn't a persistent solicitor. He is one who works quietly and inconspicuously and with measure in a way that no one would expect him to. And this is who he's been throughout this whole book. This is the way God's Messiah works in contrast to all other messiahs. And we read on that the servant will not break the bruised reed or snuff out the smoldering wick until he brings justice through to victory. Now just to give you a little history lesson, a reed in the ancient world was used for measuring and supporting things. So if it became bent or bruised, it would be completely discarded. The same with a a lamp wick that smokes, and I don't really know a ton about candles, just up on the Bath and Body Works dialogue, you know, I'm up on that. But but when a, a wick can no longer have a light on it, um, that's bad. <laughs> is, that, is that science? Did I just do science? <laughs> it can't give off any more light, it becomes useless, right? Especially in the ancient world, they were using candles to see their way around. Not so much Bath and Body Works back then, right? And when it became dead, or whatever happens to a candle when it dies, it's rendered useless. So here's what Matthew is painting the picture of. The servant who was coming would be coming for the meek and the lowly. He would be coming for those who would normally be discarded and forgotten. Even those whose society would render useless. And that, he says, is who the true king would not discard, but instead bring hope and justice to. 
The passage in Isaiah is meant to tell us the story of God's restorative and redemptive plan for the world. And it's meant to tell us that it comes and will come through a servant. One no one would expect in a way that no one would expect him to come. And it's in this servant that the world would find hope. And of course we have the luxury of knowing that this is Jesus. Now, for me, as I've read this text a million times in the last week, what has stood out over and over again is the beauty of these final verses. This final declaration, uh, not only about who Jesus was, but about who he is. And as I was reflecting a bit on all this, um, it reminded me of some good realities that have been a part of my life as a disciple of Jesus for a long time. Um, The first is that despite being fully aware of Jesus' beauty and his goodness, which I I feel like for the most part I am, often on my journey with him, I am tempted to do far more, like if I really examine myself, I'm tempted to do far more than I am tempted to be. Obviously the dream is to have your doing come out of your being, but that isn't always the case, especially for the disciple of Jesus. Now the other thing that stood out was that Jesus is rarely, if ever, what I expect him to be. And and that has power, especially for those of us who are his disciples, that has power to shape us and to inform and to cultivate a rhythm of our spiritual lives in such a way that we will either let it distract and deter us from our journey with him, or we will allow it to be a place of mystery and surrender and ultimately communion with him. You see, in this text, one of the striking uh, pieces of information that I walked away with is that Jesus, just like with the Pharisees, is always calling us to more. When we look at our text, it's not lost on any of us that the Pharisees are at the center of conflict with Jesus. Their conflict centers around the reality that they are unable to see their relationship with God in in a way that moves beyond a ritual they perform. It had become something that they regulated. It had become a responsibility to complete over and against a relationship to nurture. And Jesus, by his very nature, and not to mention in his every teaching, is constantly drawing their attention to the more, to the heart behind their religious practice. And he's not doing it, this is so kind of him, he's not doing it to humiliate them, He's doing it to invite them into the reality of the kingdom, to invite them into an experience, into life as it was intended to be. This is his invitation to them. Jesus knew that if the practice of the law was implemented without it being connected to relationship with God, then it would simply be ritualism. And ritualism without relationship leads us to spiritual paralysis. Now, now it's easy for you and I to sit here and say, those Pharisees are so dumb, poor babies. We're reading all this stuff and we're like, you guys are not getting it. But the truth is that all of us will be tempted by the same reality at one time or another. All of us who are disciples of Jesus will be tempted to do this. Every one of us, if not now, then at some point, and by the way, repeatedly, will feel tempted to lean on a formula for comfort in order to avoid moving forward. Because the truth is, moving forward in your relationship to Jesus will and is costly. 
It is painful and difficult. And honestly, there are just seasons where we don't want to do it. We'll do whatever it takes to avoid it. And so to make ourselves feel better, we'll turn to formulas and ritualism, all in the name of Jesus. For some, it's going to sound like this, God loves me. He just loves me. I know the love of God. I don't have to do anything. And you will use that to stay where you are. For others, it will be, and this is more like me, if I just do A, B, and C, then I'll be okay. And I'll stay where I am, in the doing and in the working and in the rules. But neither God's love nor the things he's asked us to do are intended to act as destinations. Did you hear me? Neither God's love nor the things he asked us to do are intended to act as destinations. They are drawing us into the more. You know God loves you? That's awesome. How much closer are you to mastering the art of loving God and loving other people in every aspect of your life? You you keep up with your spiritual disciplines, you're following the practices, you're doing the routine, awesome. Again, how much closer are you to mastering the art of loving God and other people with every aspect of your life? This is the heart of God. This is exactly why Jesus was constantly directing the Pharisees' attention to God's heart behind the law. They have the law, but what good is it if it doesn't move you towards the heart and person of God? The spiritual disciplines, the identity God has bestowed upon you, they are the means to the end, and the end is God himself. And frustratingly enough, God himself also refuses to be confined or reduced to a formula. I'm learning that thinking you have Jesus figured out is a dangerous place to be, but a common place for the disciple of Jesus. All throughout Matthew's gospel, and even in our text today, we have been pointed to the reality of this truth. Jesus wasn't what anyone expected him to be, and he certainly didn't come in the way that anyone expected him to come. And over and over again, we see that those who did not embrace the reality that he wasn't going to look or come or or be what they expected him to usually ended up either missing him completely living under the illusion of religion and ritualism, or they let their disappointment in who he wasn't deter them from life in the kingdom altogether. For the disciple of Jesus, thinking he or he should be or do what I expect him to will lead me to a place either of disappointment or stagnation. Stagnation because you'll assume God is who you want him to be and you won't move in towards him. Disappointment because he isn't who you thought he'd be and you won't move in towards him. Both paralyzing us in our discipleship to him. The reality is each one of us will likely encounter moments on the road to discipleship when we realize that Jesus in one way or another is not who we thought he would be. Moments where the cancer returns and we question whether he is healer or whether he cares at all. Moments when we think Jesus will be okay with everything that we're doing, and yet he actually asks us to take up our cross and follow him. Moments when he or she leaves and no amount of begging seems to move God's heart. 
Moments when you thought Jesus would rescue you from suffering and instead you realize that he's wired the cosmos for wild and dangerous freedom, even freedom that can hurt sometimes. Moments when you thought Jesus loved who you loved and hated who you hated, that all your causes and platforms were his clauses and platforms, and you thought he looked and sounded like the person you voted for, and guess what? He doesn't. Expectations for the disciple of Jesus will inevitably come crashing down only to reveal who and what he really is, and that is better better than you imagined him to be, the mystery of the better, and it's in the betterness of Jesus, the same betterness we find in our text today, along with all the upside-downness of the kingdom of God, a man innocently coming to lay down his life so that we could experience life to the full. That king, he will cut against the grain of who you want him to be, not because he's playing a mean or cruel game, but because at the heart of everything is relationship. Formula and predictability will keep us from intimacy. It keeps us from trusting and looking to and leaning into, believing and hoping in something other than ourselves. And if we're not careful, it will keep us from not really knowing him. And he is not willing to risk it He loves us too much to be predictable. He is for us too much to be something we can reason out and measure. He is wild and beautiful and righteous and he's our king. And we put limits on him consistently and continually and he will not be boxed because he loves us, because he wants relationship with us. Um, I've been at Bridgetown um, eight and a half years, but I've been on staff six years. And um, I bet you don't know, because I I don't think I share the story very much, but about a year before I took the job here, I was begging God to move me back to the South. Um, I was like, God, I either need a job or a husband. You choose. Like, one or the other. We clearly know what direction he went. But, uh, <laughs> but I was like, make the decision. Let's get out of Portland. And I wanted to get out of Portland for no obvious reason other than I was scared and a few other things about the society as a whole. So anyway, just minor <laughs> details. <laughs> At the time, I could only conceive life as I had known it growing up. And I, I, was, I had been, I felt like this was my conversation with the Lord, I had been a good missionary here in Portland. I was like, God, I've really given it my all for this city. Um, so I think it's time we move on, put me back into real life now. I've blessed them, and it's time to go. <laughs> so much pride. And in that season, I gave God a lot of ultimatums. And we regularly danced around what I could do for him to help him do what he needed to do for me. Have you ever done that? Yeah, it's so helpful, I think. I don't know. I don't know why it doesn't stick. And I spent months blessing God out. That's Southern speak for something else. Blessing God out for for not opening the doors I wanted him and needed him to. And I slipped very quickly into the belief system that God didn't care 
that he didn't see me and he didn't have a destiny for me. He just didn't. It had been a long time. It hadn't just been that year. It had been the year before and just a lot of other disappointments in between. And these were my constant thoughts. God doesn't care. He doesn't have anything else for me. And I remember um, one day he opened a door I didn't like, (laughs) which sometimes he does that. And Gerald called me, um, one of our pastors, and he asked me if I wanted to work at the time at Solid Rock downtown. And, um, and I was like, no. Because uh, <laughs> it, I mean, that was legitimately like, no, no, thank you. Um, and I had been volunteering with college students and all that, but I was like, this isn't part of the plan. This is not what my life looks like. I, don't, I mean, if I get a job here, then I'm like, to Portland. You know, it's like, I'm, you know, Portland. Ball and chain. I think some of you got that. (laughs) Bridgetown was a baby at the time. There was nothing concrete, and I just, I didn't want it. I just didn't, I didn't want to be here and what that would mean, and my family's all back. It just was complicated, and I thought I didn't want it. But God, he was annoying, as he usually is in a good way, and he he kept persisting, and um, it's just like... And, um, and then, you know, who else was persistent? Gerald. So <laughs> that was helpful in just like a real life way. And there's a lot more to this story, a lot of really cool, fun details that I'd love to share with all of you over a steak dinner. Uh, <laughs> but here's what I want you to get. When I finally said yes to Bridgetown, and I did it reluctantly, it was because Jesus had come to me in a way I could have never expected him. And he offered me something I thought I did not want, but he knew better. And it's been through my time and my journey at Bridgetown that I have become absolutely convinced that he will always call me to more. He will always be better than I expect him to be. He will call me to more than I can imagine for myself. He's calling me to be more than I can imagine for you more than I can anticipate, more than I can believe, more than I can build up in my head, and I am very smart. (laughs) He is inviting me constantly into more trust, into more obedience, and more dependence. And it's been one of the absolute best gifts of my life. And in return, he has given me a grander gift, a better gift than I could have even found the words to ask him for. He is always better than I expect him to be. And you are a living, breathing example of that to me every week. Listen, I don't want a Jesus I can dream up or formulate. And I don't want you to want that either. I want the wild and unexpected, dangerous, Risky, beautiful, seemingly too good to be true, Jesus. I want the Jesus who offers me both the law and the spirit, who says both leads you to a path of life. One who never looks or comes the way I expect him to, but always is the one I'm hoping for. I want us to want that. In our discipleship to Jesus, to move to a place beyond disappointment, beyond stagnation, into the more of what he's calling us to. And for each one of us, it's going to look different. 
But it, it can't happen until we acknowledge the reality of the tension before us. That some of us in the room are feeling suffocated by the disappointment we feel with him. That some of us have been feeling stuck for years and can't figure out why. As disciples of Jesus, these things will confront us, but they do not have to keep us from all that he has for us. The more, the heart behind everything he's teaching, the invitation that says come and live. Would you stand with me?